Hey everyone, and welcome to the Refield Team Fairchild podcast. I'm your host, Master Sergeant Lance Haas. Our goal with this podcast is for Team Fairchild to get to know each other, our support programs, and to increase our sense of community and development. Every episode, we'll be interviewing people from around the base and learning about them, as well as their keys to success. All right, today on the show, on Refield Team Fairchild, we have Lieutenant Colonel Mercer, the commander of the 22nd TRS. Sir, how you doing? I'm doing good. Thanks for... Uh bringing me on and letting me participate. I appreciate it. So let's start off easy with kind of how did you get here in life? What was your path? Well, it, uh, I'll go all the way back to kind of the beginning for me. I was, I was raised on a fairly large cattle ranch in Southern Arizona. It was a family run operation. It was about 33,000 acres. Um, I jokingly, but not entirely jokingly say I joined the army infantry at 17 to get some rest. Um, ranching was really, really hard. And it was, uh, there was only enough to really sustain one family, so I needed to leave and, and move out on my own. Uh, my father was a disabled vet from World War II. He'd fought in the Pacific and been wounded. He'd been Army infantry. My half-brother was a Vietnam-era medevac pilot, Silver Star winner. Uh, just some really amazing examples from that standpoint, and I just couldn't comprehend not going military. Yeah, those are some, some big shoes to fill, right? <laughs> no no absolutely. pressure. No, absolutely. <laughs> Well, I, I kind of struck out on my, uh, my own way there, um, started out with the Army Infantry and uh, went through a couple assignments. Kind of the neatest aspect of my time in the infantry is I was assigned to West Berlin, Germany, back when it was still a divided city wow. sitting in East, East Germany. So um, really cool. I was, I was there long enough to think that the wall was going to be there forever, and I was also there when the wall opened up. Okay, so you got to tell me about that experience real quick, because I mean that's that's a moment I remember as being you know from my childhood. No, no offense, not to, none I'm taken. not calling it old, but none so, taken. Uh, you know that was a huge defining moment in world history. So being right there at the forefront, can you can you share a little bit about those perspectives, or did it hit you at that time? Or oh, it absolutely hit me. Um, it was uh, it was interesting because I arrived in in Germany. Germany was actually my second assignment out of my, what the Air Force would consider tech training. Okay. Uh, so I came first to Fort Carson near Colorado Springs, Colorado, and mm-hmm. then uh, came to West Berlin. And I got there in uh, the very beginning of 1989. And mm-hmm. <clears throat> it was the wall. Uh, we used to go out and do PT and we'd run along the wall and kind of show the East Germans you know, who the tough guys were and all yeah. that stuff. And we'd run around the city and do PT. And it was a lot of uh, kind of in-your-face activity. Uh, when we passed through checkpoints going from Berlin over to West Germany, we drove straight through East German checkpoints. We didn't even acknowledge their existence. The only, <laughs> the only people we, uh, we interacted with was the Russians at that point, which was completely different because in 1989, um, it was still possible that World War III would happen. And so... This was your adversary. This was the guy that was going to kill you if it all went sideways. Kind of a surreal experience. But where Berlin was, was actually closer to Poland than it was to West Germany. So mm-hmm. you, you knew you were very much not, in, uh, not going to be taken care of if the, if the fight kicked off. And I actually remember them saying that uh, the roughly 3,500 U.S. troops that were assigned there, that didn't include the British and the French troops as well. Okay. But none of them were included in any long-term battle plan. All those, that entire organization, the entire city was written off uh, should uh, a war kick off with the Warsaw Pact at that time with NATO. 
And uh, we were just supposed to suck up resources and resist until as long as we could. So different concept, but the city was amazing, absolutely amazing. And uh, divided as it was, mm-hmm. had been for 26 years by that time. Uh, everybody had settled in with a concept. It was always going to be like that. And uh, ended up getting a chance to spend Christmas. Uh, they kind of adopted this, uh, this single army soldier and uh, nice. for Christmas brought me in and, uh, and I got to meet him and very fascinating because the, the father was the only one who had made it out of East Berlin or out of East Germany before the wall went up formally wow. at that time. So he had been alone with the rest of his family in East Germany at that time for 26 years. And though very different insight, everything else, but again, um, we, my unit had gone and trained in an urban warfare site. Uh, and as we came back from the urban warfare site, we're literally, we've got our gear out, we're cleaning it, we're getting ready to, to repack it for our next trip. Mm-hmm. And somebody goes, hey, Checkpoint Charlie's open. And Checkpoint Charlie was the entry point uh, into East Germany from the American sector. And, uh, and we all laughed at him, you know, because it was ludicrous. Yeah. Who, would, who would ever think that somebody would be silly enough to say that? And then they're like, no, I'm serious. It's really happening. And then uh, they turned on a TV at that point and showed this massive group of people excited and, and cheering and everything else and all these people hugging each other as they came through Checkpoint Charlie. Wow. Uh, fascinating, but complete different orientation. Had no idea that it was going to be possible. And all of a sudden it happened. Now, what's kind of interesting out of that whole story is the following Christmas I spent with the same family. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. This time I had my wife, brand new wife, mm-hmm. and for the first time in 27 years, the father had had his sister over to have Christmas. And to hear her talk about it, everything seemed entirely normal to the East Germans. And they wake up the next morning and the government is gone, like collapsed. Really? Doesn't exist anymore. And, uh, oh, and so putting myself in their position and how stunning that would be to have your government and your society basically evaporate overnight, it is, it is dumbfounding. I just couldn't imagine that situation. I can't right now while you're telling me that. I've, I got nothing. <laughs> oh, it's, uh, it, it was phenomenal to end up getting a chance to see that. But I was there when the wall came down. Um, we got married and then... We were there when the reunification occurred. It started with a monetary reunification where they joined uh, the, the mark. Mm-hmm. And then it ended up with a national reunification where they joined the two, two countries and it all became West Germany or Germany at that time. Mm-hmm. So fascinating to see kind of, a, kind of a reset on what you think are your expectations and what's possible because the reality is it can change in a heartbeat. Uh, and I... Got to see it happen right in front of me. And it was uh, amazing to be a part of, but it was humbling and, uh, and enlightening just to be careful about being too, too rigid in your thinking right. and, uh, and not being ready to adapt when times change quickly. So I know I'm going to speed ahead here just a little bit, but because you say that it makes me think that you've revisited that at different points in your career or in your life in general and kind of had that as a reminder, possibly in different situations. Have you been kind of taking it with you in that sense? Or? I have. Um, I was really fortunate to be given some uh, some opportunities for different career progression and to take some, my career in different directions. I had started in the infantry. Um, when I'd finished my 
active duty time with the Army Infantry, I got out, got into the Arizona Army National Guard, switched from an infantry uh, infantryman over to a crew chief on Apaches. And so now I'm, I'm doing maintenance work on Apaches, but I really, really wanted to fly. And the warrant program in the Army was a phenomenal opportunity. So mm-hmm. about 18 to 24 months after getting into the Guard, they finally send me to flight school as an aviation warrant. So I get to go do this. But again, all of it is this dramatic reorientation because <laughs> the first time you put on your bar and you walk out and someone salutes you, you're kind of dumbfounded. Like, did I miss something? <laughs> because you just, it's always been you saluting others and now it's, it's being reversed. Yeah. So it's a, that kind of, kind of the pause and it's like, okay, the world is different. Let me adjust. And, yeah. uh, and you, start, you start recognizing your new role and doing your best to, to fulfill it. Now, oh. That, um, I, did, I did the aviation warrant um, thing, went back to the Arizona Guard, flew OH-58s um, for a while. Uh, they brought me back to Fort Rucker and put me through as an Apache uh, pilot, so okay. I got a chance to fly that. Amazing, amazing experience getting the chance to do that. And then as, as uh, luck would have it, where my guard unit was at, it was also co-located with the school for the Army National Guard but the Western Army Aviation Training Site. So you did uh, okay. qualification and instructor courses for the Army Aviation for the Guard. And wow. so they brought me back to the OH-58, and I taught in that. Wow. So um, worked on my associate's degree. Uh, I'm you know, married, got a kid, doing all that stuff. Um, then started working on my bachelor's degree, mm-hmm. and it was killing me, absolutely killing me. I have so much respect for the folks that pursue their education while working because it is just awful. Yes. <laughs> I had, uh, I, I was going to school essentially full-time. I was carrying full-time hours. Oh, wow. I was a traditional member of the guard. Uh, at that time I was still flying Apaches. And then I was working a temporary technician job running the Apache simulator. And I would do that on weekends, usually a Friday through Sunday. And I literally remember being so exhausted that I'm flying in the pattern in the in the Apache and I'm micro sleeping oh. while while we're in the pattern and I'm on the controls. So not in the simulator. In no, the, no, in, this is in the oh, aircraft. Okay, and, wow. <laughs> and I'm and I, I cannot stop myself from micro sleeping. It wasn't. Uh, it was in hindsight. It was foolish. I should have identified the fact that I was just way too exhausted to safely fly. Yeah, but. Um, I was young and aspiring to try to find a full-time position, and this is what it took. So I just hung on there. I'd see my uh, kids usually. Um, I'd send them off to school on Monday morning, and I wouldn't see them again until maybe Saturday. Wow. That uh, was the next time I'd see them. So, how long? How, how many months, that, years were you doing that? That one went on for about 18 months Wow. Uh, before I kind of hit a point of exhaustion, and I had to throttle back on, on at least the school. Um, what ended up being a great opportunity for me was they, they liked my work ethic and some other stuff. So they brought me on as an active guard member, okay. which completely changed everything because now I had one job and now a normal schedule. I had leave. I had all those things that come with active military service. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I was stunningly grateful for the change of events and, and what that offered to me at that time. And uh, it also allowed me to take about six months off. And then I got back after it with uh, with college. So by the time I finished my bachelor's degree at that point, 
I was like, hey, there's a there's an Air Force Reserve unit uh, nearby uh, that flies Pavehawks, and I'd really like to get in involved with that because the Air Force would be awesome. Okay. And uh, and I knew they don't you know they don't have warrants in the Air Force, so I've got to be uh, a lieutenant. Which mm-hmm. in the Army, if you're not a warrant, then you're an RLO, a real live officer. Uh, so <laughs> I was going to go be an RLO in the Air Force. But the uh, yeah, it was. It was phenomenal. I went and talked to the unit, and the unit said, uh, "Yeah, yeah, no, we'll we'll take you." You know, because I mean, at that point, I had uh, over a thousand hours of flight time, and so bring in a second lieutenant with that kind of flight time, it's advantageous to the unit. Yeah, it was uh, an easy kill for him. Yeah, yeah it it, yeah. it worked out well, but nothing ever is that easy. Fair enough. So, yeah, <laughs> uh, that that turned into a, a two year odyssey of trying to get <laughs> trying to get swapped over from the guard to the reserves. Wow. To get all the paperwork and everything else, there is so many barriers to some sort of inter-service transfer. Um, now, had I moved okay. around in the Army, it would have been dramatically easier than had I gone from Army to Air Force. But uh, it's it's kind of been a theme in my life and one that I highly recommend to people. First of all, stay humble. Um, because when you get those loud-mouthed, really arrogant people, they may be incredibly gifted and may be rock stars at their job. But the first time they stub their toe and stumble, everybody's laughing. And, uh, and mm-hmm. that's just not the place you want to be. If you're humble, you work hard, uh, do your best while you can where you're at, then when you stumble, which invariably you will, yeah, well, you'll, have, yeah. Yeah, you'll have hands reach out to help you out. And, uh, and that's, a, that's a great thing to end up doing. And the next thing is, is once you've kind of built that relationship with the people that you're with, and uh, you aspire to go do something else, you're going to hear a lot of no's. But if you take away the no's, they are only left with one answer, and that's yes. <laughs> so, so when people say no, um, some things will be a hard shut door on you. You can't avoid that. Right. There's things you can't right. do. But by and large, almost, almost everything in the military is waverable to a certain extent. And if you go uh, about you know, aggressively reducing all of the no answers that they have, eventually you get a yes. And so all of those things helped me to set up the opportunity for really good people um, who I was fortunate to work with to say yes and to give me those opportunities. And so I got a question for you about that. I was talking to interviewing Colonel Heathman. I'm not sure for the listener where they're going to, if they're going to hear you first or him first, but he had a certain number of no's that he would make whoever basically say before he, okay, they're really serious now. Do you kind of have that cut off or you kind of read the room a little bit differently or do you know, understand? Um, yeah, I, I completely yeah. understand what you're saying. I'm not, um, Colonel Heathman is a, is an incredibly unique and highly intelligent <laughs> individual. I don't think I was that analytical and, <laughs> and plotting about things. Um, I just, I just wouldn't quit. So okay. gotcha. uh, regardless of the number of no's, you, you can, like you said, read the room. And when uh, when their next step to saying no is to take you out and shoot you, you obviously quit. Yeah, and, throw it uh, back a little bit. Exactly, exactly. And, uh, <laughs> Fair enough. But I, when, it, when it wasn't to that point, I'd keep pushing, uh, oh. particularly if it mattered to me. And uh, it, it turned out to be a great thing to end up doing. Finally got all the, the pain and all the disincentives to making the transfer and all the other stuff resolved. And I found myself in uh, an Air Force Rescue Reserve Squadron getting okay. a chance to fly Pavehawks 
for the Air Force, which That's was awesome. amazing, absolutely awesome. And uh, uh, there's an adage in the flying community that it's better to be lucky than good. And uh, okay. it definitely <laughs> proved true for me because I'd been in the reserve squadron for about 14 months and a brand new active duty unit stood up right next door to the reserve squadron flying the same helicopter, doing all of those things. And I really wanted full-time employment because as a <laughs> yeah. traditional reservist, I had been uh, utilizing man days and everything else to take care of my family and cover medical insurance, all that stuff. Yeah. And by now you married one kid or two one, kids, two at, two that kids point. at that time? Yeah. Yeah. That so, could get a little tight. Yeah. Yeah. No, I had, I had two children by the time I left the army and, uh, and we stopped at two. And uh, so the kids are growing up, they're getting a little older, typical things, you know, kids uh, between, you know, four and, and eight, nine years old, get injured, you know, fall down, do different things. You take them to the doctor, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Some of that was pretty dicey on those moments when I wasn't on orders. Oh, yeah. I had yeah. tremendous, tremendous appreciation for the stability and the benefits that the military offered. And I was <laughs> aggressively seeking those. <laughs> However... In the Guard and the Reserve, the only people that they can really afford to hire on full-time are highly experienced people. Mm-hmm. And it was going to be a long time before I achieved the level of experience that they would hire me on in a full-time position. Gotcha. So I went to my commander at that point, and I talked to him, and uh, and I really loved his response because it was such a big-picture response. Uh, he said, Bill, um, we're not losing you. He goes, you're still in the Air Force. You're still in the DOD. You're still flying. Oh, he goes, so whether you leave this squadron and you go fly someplace else, we haven't lost you. So I support you applying to go to the active duty unit fully. I thought that was amazing. Yeah. And uh, and a great example of leadership because I know it didn't help his manning numbers. Mm-hmm. And I know it didn't help whatever the unit might have wanted to do. But he respected me enough as a human being that he would give me that answer and give me the freedom to go aspire to go active duty. Yeah. That's awesome. Pretty amazing. Um, I applied. I got in. I uh, got accepted and uh, and moved over to the active duty squadron about four or five months later. Okay. And then off we go with the Air Force career as a second lieutenant and then a first lieutenant. Completely different. The, the uniform's different with all these colored patches and all this amazing <laughs> stuff. And I periodically go back to uh, my guard unit, uh, Army Guard unit, and, and talk coordination stuff because... Well, I was a, I was an ex-Army guy, so when we needed to work air, airspace issues, they'd send me over there to talk to those guys. <laughs> the liaison, yeah. <laughs> so it kind of felt good. I mean, it, it may sound petty. I don't. I never intended it to be, but it kind of felt good because uh, I always got questions of, "Hey, how'd you do that? You know, man, that's amazing. How how do you go about that?" Yeah. And the reality is, is there there is no menu. It was just a series of fortunate events and life uh, occurrences where I. I'd fortunately done what I needed to, to be able to make that next move. Mm-hmm. And some folks have stepped in to help me at the right time. So I couldn't give anybody else. Here's, you know, here's the recipe for how you get this done. <laughs> yeah. Let me download that checklist for you. No, it's not. Yeah. So they probably thought I was holding out on them, you know, to make sure that they weren't given the same opportunities. But the truth was it was, it was unduplicatable. It just didn't, it didn't happen the same way twice. Wow. So, and then, uh, Flew for the Air Force, doing Pavehawks, um, did it at Davis-Monthan, did it at Moody, and mm-hmm. then taught at the formal training unit uh, in Albuquerque. Okay. And uh, oh, that was five deployments at that point, Afghanistan and Iraq, that uh, we finished up, which was 
actually a low number for a lot of the folks in my community. Okay. Um, so uh, at one point we were in a one-to-one dwell, so it was a bit of a grind. Yeah. You'd spend uh, four months deployed and then you'd come back for four months, but you'd always come back partially into your first of your four months back. You'd do TDYs <laughs> to spin up. You'd, then, you'd, yeah. then you'd leave before the end of your fourth month to get back and be in theater in place. Yeah, the so, in-theater date was four months. So, yeah, there's that prep time on each so, side. Yeah, all of that was just a grind. It was just uh, wearing people out. But great, great mission, combat search and rescue, and um, a very meaningful mission. It was oh, kind of, it's, uh, it's one of those funny things where I can only imagine like uh, EMTs and, and certain people like that that have that instant feedback on on their job like if, when you land in an lz somewhere and they load a human being on your aircraft and you depart and you return home with that person on board you've just affected so so much you've affected yeah. that individual you've affected everybody that cares about them you've affected their unit to a certain extent you've denied the the enemy the ability to use it as propaganda any of those other things and to, to be sitting in the seat and to look over your shoulder and see that person in the back being worked on by the pararescue team is amazing. That is, it is hard not to be jazzed about that. Yeah. It's really, really rewarding. But the, uh, yeah, ended up doing that. And then, um, <laughs> I got tired. Like I said, we were in a pretty big grind and I yeah. kind of in, got into a, a really kind of a, a down part in my life. Okay. Um, really, really frustrated. I was angry about a lot of things. Um, mainly, it's one of those things where uh, if you're first person to foreign policy and you don't like what's happening, you feel like it's a waste or whatever, and you end up spending all your time focusing on all the things you can do nothing about, that is a tremendous recipe for unhappiness because yeah. you're mad about things that will never change and that you can actually never impact. So. Yeah. That grew into a habit and that grew into uh, a very dysfunctional way of living for me. So pretty dark uh, period of time. I was angry, frustrated. I figured, hey, I'll leave the Air Force and, uh, and I'll leave this behind. Naive and ignorant for me to have thought that way. But um, <laughs> as, uh, as luck would have it, I had, uh, had some remaining time on uh, my commitment. Okay. And I was like, hey, just, you know, just let me go and you don't need to pay me. And they're like, oh, no, no. That's not how it works. And, uh, and so the, uh, the statement was, well, if you never come back up, you know, medically, well, uh, we don't have to pay you anyways, but you're doing your time. And also, we'd highly recommend that you volunteer for this 365 deployment. So little, little hmm. cynical, a little angry, um, angsted up about stuff. And then the response was, um, you're now going to do an unaccompanied 365 and uh, I was just starting to get my head right about the time when I took that shot. And I was, uh, uh, so I was still pretty frustrated. And yeah, it was a, a very dramatic shift for my wife. who We had expectations we were going to get out and go do other things. Yeah, kind and, of planning that path and then 180 it a little bit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now, it's funny because while, while we frequently think that the worst thing that could possibly happen to us is X, um, I thought that the worst thing that could possibly happen would be told, no, you can't leave the Air Force, and I need you to do this unaccompanied tour. It actually ended up being probably the best thing that could have possibly happened to me. Um, wow. And, and it, it worked out tremendously. I was given a phenomenal opportunity 
to run personnel recovery for U.S. CENTCOM. Um, as the director of the Joint Personnel Recovery Center there at IUD in the chaos. Now, let me peel into that a little bit if I can. Yeah. Was that your leadership's design for that? I mean, were they recognizing the signs? Hey, we got to we got to work with this guy, or was that you think it's just that whole luck thing that kind of went in there? Um, I don't think it was planned. Okay. Uh, as much um, the uh, it was I would I would call it luck. Okay. I would call it the fact that. Uh, the JPRC director position was uh, a needed position. Uh, not a lot of people in the community were excited or jazzed about doing a 365. So mm-hmm. everybody was kind of ducking their head and looking the other way whenever they were looking for volunteers. Here you've got a guy that's uh, medically unable to fly. And mm-hmm. uh, he's a phenomenal candidate to go do this. And, <laughs> and we, we've, got him, we've got him by the short hairs on a, uh, on a contract. So let's, uh, let's offer this opportunity. And um, it, it was, it's kind of funny because so many different things happened in quick succession that were just, I'd, I'd really call them enlightening. I kind of kind of grew up a little bit in some of that process because that position, I ended up going over and filling it and it dawned on me what an opportunity it was. So it wasn't, I was, I was upset initially because I was being made to go. Right. And I yeah. hadn't come to realize what I was being given a chance to do. And so eventually you, uh, you get your head out of your posterior and, <laughs> and you realize what's going on and that you can make a real impact. And we were managing personnel recovery. This is 2013, 2014. Okay. For U.S. Central Command. So that's Afghanistan and Iraq and every place else. And then that went all the way over to Egypt and every place else. And just you are literally managing personnel recovery, the architecture for tens, potentially 100,000 U.S. citizens and military members in that region. Yeah. And um, just poor performance has an (laughs) awful potential outcome in that situation. You can't be complacent. You can't be lackadaisical. Yeah. If there's something to focus you in, I mean, holy crap, that's it. (laughs) Well, it it is. And the other side of that, too, is it placed you in a position on the CAOC floor where you got to see how the Air Force goes to war. And, uh, wow. and, and how it integrates and how it does things. And frankly, no one else does it like we do. And that is why we are so effective at what we do. We'll always need to evolve. We'll always need to adapt and update. Yeah. But to get to see the ability to put an immense amount of intellectual horsepower with a, just a whole huge array of specialists that are out on the floor. And a bunch of them are weapons officers that are at the top of their game. Mm-hmm. and you've got a problem, then you just go talk to so-and-so over here, and you can start getting after the problem. So personnel recovery event, you want to talk, go talk to the space guys. You want to go talk to air battle managers. You want to go talk to the guys dropping bombs. You want to talk to the intel folks. Any of it is right there. You literally only got to walk a few steps. Wow. And tremendous, tremendous um, synergy and, and power. And to, to see our coalition partners participating as well, and get their insights was a phenomenal opportunity. And in that position, you end up being multiple layers closer to some really amazing, amazing leadership. And I was fortunate in that the early part of my time uh, there at IUD was under the ascent commander at that time was Lieutenant General Golfie. Oh, yeah. So uh, <laughs> oddly enough, he's progressed on to, to 
be the uh, chief of staff of the Air Force and, uh, and just an incredible, incredible leader. But to, to get some proximity to that, to have to brief his immediate subordinates, do some of those things on some of the personnel reco- recovery problems we had in theater. Just a great opportunity, and it makes you step up your game. Oh, yeah. So yeah. I, couldn't, I couldn't spend a bunch of time being, being buried in, in Bill's problems when there was a lot of other, other stuff that I needed to work on. And so it was a great place to be. And that year really got my head straight. Nice. So uh, phenomenal. I, I keep saying that over <laughs> and again. I apologize. But no, yeah. it, is, it is, was a tremendous, kind of a life-changing experience just because it got you out of your head and you started thinking about other people's challenges. And when you start talking about people who are isolated or in captivity or any of those other things, it's a tremendous perspective shift. (laughs) And you stop worrying about whatever your first world problems are and start thinking about what really is happening. Yeah. I got to do that. And the, the, uh, I guess if you want to call it the reward out of that was uh, I had a great, uh, great individual that just, happens to now be my group commander, uh, who happened to throw my name out in a meeting that was happening uh, in New Mexico and said, hey, there's this guy that, uh, that could go do this job. And the job was to teach Arctic survival uh, for the Air Force up at Isleson Air Force Base near Fairbanks. Mm-hmm. And uh, oh, again, better lucky than good. There was a guy that was slated to go do that. And uh, he had, I guess he was, uh, had an injury, but he hadn't got it recorded on a profile. Okay. And uh, went and took a PT test. I don't know the background because none of it really makes that much sense. But in the end, he failed a PT test. Okay. But it was for an injury. It wasn't for just being uh, lackadaisical. Yeah. And uh, so he's off the table and I'm back in. And it was uh, because my timing wasn't going to work out. So now he's out and now my timing does work. So I get this opportunity to go up to uh, Alaska and do this. And I did that for three years. And that was an epic adventure, <laughs> just truly epic. I would imagine, I mean, everything you said besides the Germany part has seemed like warm environments. So alone from the mission and that, I mean, just, just for the culture shock of that, I imagine it had to be a pretty epic time. Well, it was, uh, it was wholly outside of my uh, comfort zone. Let's just say <laughs> that as you talked about climate and otherwise, I did not see myself um, being in the, uh, you know, the, the great state of Alaska just didn't see how it would ever happen. Mm-hmm. Um, wasn't a normal place that anyone in my career field ever went. And I was given the chance to be a detachment commander wow. up there and go do that. Um, and that that job, uh, you start looking at the Arctic, and I just happened to be in that moment in which um, climate change and the amount mm-hmm. of melting ice that's happening and the opening of previously closed navigable waterways oh yeah and a lot of those things have caused a reorientation to arctic strategy so a bunch of people are showing up to to hear about what arctic survival thinks of the environment in the arctic and what the risks are and everything else and so just a great opportunity to meet some incredible people uh general officers uh some admirals uh you know uh elected politicians and a bunch of other things and to be placed in the position where they're actually curious what your opinion is on some of those things. And that was, that was a great opportunity, but it was also, again, immensely humbling because you, you can't, you can't shoot from the hip. You have to be very, very precise about what you say and it has to be fact and, and not supposition or conjecture. And so it, 
the requirement then made you to to do an awful amount, awful lot of study <laughs> and to really get into the things you would have never thought uh, to end up chasing out on on strategy and the history of the area and all the other stuff, which was um, great to be a part of. But the job took me to weird places like northern uh, northern Canada, mm-hmm. uh, some other places in there, and over to Greenland. I mean, when, in a, when would you ever think you're going to end up being in Greenland? And, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, and and to, to be immersed in some really old Cold War stuff, like uh, Kangalooswag is a, is a town on the west coast of Greenland. Okay. Uh, quite a bit south of Thule, okay. uh, Greenland. It's the old Sondestrom Air Base uh, back in the days. That's what it was called, but it's, uh, it's Kangar now. And uh, get to see that. That's really cool. And then we'd fly out onto the ice cap, and there's this, you'd be out on the ice cap. You're on, it's about 8,000 feet elevation where you're at, and you're on 2,000 feet of ice. Below that's the, the ground of, of Greenland. You'd look one direction, and there's this massive square facility with a giant radome on top of it, just sitting out, um, like being consumed by the ice. And it was an old listening station, one of the old die sites, D-Y-E site. I think it was die site two. And you got a chance to go there, and they had abandoned that. I believe that one was abandoned uh, in 1986, I think, is when they abandoned it. Wow. And you go in, they, they take you over there and you get a chance to go in and the staff duty officer's log is literally inside the front door. <laughs> and the, the whole place is being slowly consumed by the ice because it hasn't been, they had a procedure for basically walking. The entire building was up on these legs and oh. it would lift the legs in succession and then they would put the plates on top of the ice and then... They, or the snow accumulations, and they just literally keep walking this building. And that was the way it kept raising itself with the snow accumulations. Yeah, yeah. When they stopped doing that, then it started to fill in. So uh, looking at it now, it's probably uh, probably a third consumed. Um, another another 20 or 30 years, you won't even be able to enter the building anymore. Uh, <laughs> but the, uh, yeah, it just, it's, it was surreal. I mean, yeah. it was like some time capsule that you'd end up, uh, getting a chance to go see, but Greenland itself was was such a, a neat deal, and I mean, I never ever once thought that that was on the uh, potential list of places to go see. Get a chance to go do that and see that, and then uh, yeah, yeah, I was really fortunate because typical that uh, command would be two years. Mm-hmm. As luck would have it, I got three. Wow! And so I uh, was able to stay there and see more of Alaska and get to do that stuff. And kind of, it always seemed like. The two-year deal was enough time to have great ideas, but not quite see them all the way through to fruition. Is it kind of did that help kind of see some of those things and see some of the fruits of your labor a little bit more as well? I I think it did. Uh, the The upside is that I was backed by some really great leadership, and when I articulated what some of our problems were with equipment and stuff that we needed for the student training, mm-hmm. uh, they were able to uh, su- support that, and they were able to get us gear. That we needed, and so by the time that the three years were over, the organization itself was was completely in a different position in the quality nice. of the gear, the quality of the things that we had to be able to give the students as they were going through training, and what the instructors needed to be able to get around and to support the students safely had really changed a lot in those three years, and it really had to do with my leadership uh, being willing nice. to support what I 
what I'd said was a problem and they, they came up and they took a look at it. They're like, absolutely, let's, let's figure out how to get the money for it. And we're still, early part of that, still sequestration, you know, money's still tight, but uh, uh, we were still finding, <laughs> finding some money at the end of the year and we'd be able to, to do some of those things. But you're right. Yeah. I think that having three years allowed me to, to see some projects through to an extent I wouldn't have. Nice. And uh, nice. when I gave that off to the, uh, to the next commander, um, he's just taken it and run from there because he no longer had this set of worries yeah. that I've been able to get taken care of. And that allowed him to accelerate in another direction. So uh, I think that's just another thing you do. You just try to hand it off uh, better than you got it uh, mm-hmm. to the utmost of your ability. Sometimes old equipment, sometimes uh, financial constraints don't allow you to really do that, but you hand it off the best that you can and, and keep it at the highest state you possibly can. Yeah. It's never going to be perfect, right? You're always going to have, you're never going to have enough money. You're never going to have enough people. You're never going to have enough resources. But if you can kind of figure out how to most effectively use what you do have. Yeah. And that's part of the, part of the piece that kind of, I think that circling back to Berlin and how fast things change is mm-hmm. the fact that uh, there's a risk in developing dogma and sustaining that just because that's the way it's always been. That's not an effective answer. It's never going to be. Things <laughs> yeah. become the way they are frequently for a very valid reason. But sometimes they don't because the times that cause that no longer exist. Right. And uh, But people have never adjusted to what's happening now. And so we keep doing things. So that's kind of one of those things where you just kind of look around and what are we doing that doesn't make sense and that we can, we can do differently or smarter or anything else. Everybody calls, calls it innovation. And some people hear, hear innovation in the Air Force and they want to throw up. <laughs> I, I, can, I can relate in some of that stuff. But the truth of it is, is that what are we doing you know, that, is, that is unnecessary? And is there something that's changed in the world, whether it's technology or the people that are coming in now that we can utilize to do it a different way? Yeah. And uh, so I chased after some of that and and got after some things. And it was really more about um, setting the baseline for that organization so that it had the best equipment I could get it. So they spent less time working with crummy equipment and could spend more time focusing on the training. Yeah. I mean, that's what they're there for. That's what's going to pay you dividends in the future. That has to be the baseline. That makes perfect sense. And it was... uh, (laughs) The Arctic, or at least the polar regions, are the most lethal environment on the planet that I'm aware of. Um, I grew up in the desert. I saw a lot of animals die from the heat, um, being on a ranch and everything else. But the cold, minus 40, minus 50, that will kill you so quickly. And there is not a lot that you can do unless you are trained in how to deal with it. And so the, the need to train our forces and the cost associated with equipping them for that that environment is extraordinary. And so mm-hmm. uh, as the reorientation to the Arctic strategy really started to, to evolve and pick up uh, momentum, there were a lot of discussions and they were some pretty tough discussions with, with different people about what the real dollar cost was of getting military forces equipped for that environment so that you didn't just get to cherry pick what time of the year you practice some <laughs> exercise up there. You went in at any time and could fight. And so it's it was good to end up getting that discussion open and getting some of the organizations to start looking at that. Yeah. And I think in no way am I even beginning to try to claim I had some part in that. 
But there are organizations that are up in Alaska now that are better prepared, quite a bit better prepared than they were a couple years ago, just because they they asked the hard questions and they really analyzed what they were doing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they said, hey, we've got to invest in these different places to be able to project power up here. And the Russians have been doing it for a long, long time. They're very, very good at it. And we just can't afford to not be proficient as well. Yeah. It was neat to be a part of that and, and to see all that evolve. And then I uh, ended up getting picked up for a uh, ops officer position down here at Fairchild. Okay. Uh, yeah. the, my predecessor uh, was grabbed out of his uh, ops officer job a year early so he could go take command of a squadron down at uh, Davis Monthan. Okay. Yeah. And so they had a gap. That happened a year early and they brought me down. I was just so ecstatic because <laughs> when, when I came through survival training in 2003, mm-hmm. the first thing that I did when I called up my wife was, man, I'd love to live up here. This is amazing. <laughs> We'd really like to do this. And uh, it just, again, one of those things that's just not feasible to have happen. Mm-hmm. And years later, you're, well, here I'm at, here I am. This is, this is amazing how this worked out. Yeah. But uh, got, to, got into the job as an ops officer, and then that year ended, the outgoing commander um, departed command, and they, they said, hey, you're going to take over as the commander in the same organization. Wow. And so that's what brings us up to commander of the 22nd Training Squadron, is uh, they handed me the guide on, and we're going to end up, you know, got a chance to run this organization. Just, I, like you mentioned or alluded to, uh, I am going to be giving up command mm-hmm. and, uh, and then I will be retiring about three months after that or having my ceremony and, uh, and moving on. And that'll culminate about 32 and a half years wow. uh, of being in the military. But I could not have dreamed of a better way to finish up than with U.S. Air Force SEER specialists and the other uh, support AFSCs and amazing professionals in the 22nd and the 336 training group that make this this mission go. And it's just super exciting because we talk about it being survival training. Yeah. And we do prepare people for those environments. But what's funny is that in the end, what we're really creating and what we're really developing to the force is a better person, a better human weapon system. Yeah. Because they're tougher, they're smarter, they have more confidence. They understand their limitations better, and they understand that they have way more capacity than they previously felt comfortable exploring. And they go out to the force as just different people. And I think that that is probably the biggest thing we add to the combat power of the U.S. Air Force and some of our joint partners is just the human beings that we hand back to the units yeah. who have had those experiences are, are better for it. Absolutely. So... Completely random question with this. From what you've seen so far, would you recommend it would be a good idea for every Air Force person to go through this if we can all step up our game that way? That's a difficult question because there's a there's a huge aspect of capacity yeah. to throughput that many people and to not um, have to water down or take the course in a dramatically different way. Right. right. And... Um, to take 100% of the force and rip them out of whatever they're doing for three weeks, you know, for 19 days to run them through SEER C, uh, SEER level C, just not feasible. If I could do it, if I could wave a wand and have everybody get that experience, absolutely. And that's, that's more what I was meaning. I, I knew 
infrastructure wise, I wasn't meaning to change policy in it. I was just, yeah, you know, I, the, the benefits that you get from it. So absolutely. the way we want. Yeah. I, I think, I think it, um, it takes people in directions and into experiences that are not possible in the normal world. And we live in a phenomenal country in a phenomenal time where yeah. comfort and, uh, and prosperity and safety and everything else is at such a high level. And we're kind of disconnected to a certain extent from what it means to, to endure and yeah. to suffer privation and to go through the hardship, to go through the, the fear of engaging with things that are completely unknown, that you're not prepared for, and getting to experience that. And then getting trained and then getting to see what you can do when you're now trained in that same environment that had terrified you before. Mm-hmm. And it's just a completely different uh, place that they come from. And it was really, really neat to see the different personalities. SEER training in general is so much more about the personality of the person than it really is about physicality. Mm-hmm. Because really, it's about the toughness between your ears and, <laughs> and, how, yeah. and how excited you are about engaging with something that you're not confident in. And okay. I've, seen, yeah. I've seen what you would think would be, if you were going to stereotype some group, uh, I've seen, you know, uh, up in Alaska at the Arctic Survival, I've seen uh, extremely young female admin personnel. Um, who had never really had any world experience in camping or anything else, but had such a phenomenal attitude and were so excited about what they were doing and embracing the experience and doing what they were told to do to the utmost of their ability that they just crushed like this old salty Lieutenant Colonel F-22 pilot. (laughs) And it just didn't match a lot of those expectations because you would think, oh, well, that guy's going to just wreck this young lady. In this process, and she just just rocketed through it because she had a great attitude, and yeah. it was all about what was what was going on in her head, and she was dialed in, and she was she was engaged, and she just crushed it. And you can watch that happen in these classes as they go through here, yeah. and what you arrive with your attitude towards it, your attitude towards life in general is really what makes or breaks you, and uh, and so many of the folks that come here. Yeah because it is a very aircrew centric course, they've already been through a lot. They already have been um, selected for different things and have, yeah. have earned their place along the way to, to earn their AFSCs and their skills and everything else. And they show up and it's a really good group. Uh, and it's good to get a chance to work with them and to see, see them go through this process. But nobody ever arrives here prepared. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and they go through the experience and they come out subtly changed and the the subtly changed person is just more confident and more capable. Wow, wow, that's awesome. There's a couple of guys that help me out over in FTAC that are here, and there may occasionally be some talk of, "Come on, Lance, you should go through this sometime." And there's a lot of me that wants to, and then there's some of me that I don't know. <laughs> I suppose you got to take advantage of the opportunities, you know, instead of letting it go by, though. So I, I would I would <laughs> recommend that you end up doing that because the impact that it has on you and the, and the direction it might take you, you would never know. And uh, even if it ends up being unfruitful uh, for you personally, it will be a set of experiences that you have and you will now have built a fraternity or a comradeship with everyone else who's had that experience. And it's, it's neat to be part of that that new group 
because we're already in an amazing subculture within the military. And then you get to go through something that's um, a little more on the extreme side, experience that. And everybody's like, oh yeah, no, I remember that. And I was bad at that. That was a terrible (laughs) experience. And you guys talk, can talk about that and you can talk about and come to the realization of what an amazing story you're building Mm -hmm. um, for you personally and professionally. And being with that group that's been through that, it allows you to to be a part of just a a newer, more, and I don't want to sound elitist, but it's a more exclusive group. Well, you've been challenged in a different way that not everybody gets to experience. Yes. And and so there's, there's the benefit that comes to you from just setting aside your anxiety about potential poor performance or discomfort or anything else and just going through the experience because when you come out of the other side of it, you're invariably better. Um, it may not be an experience you ever want to go through again. I have heard that. <laughs> well, many of the many of the things in our lives in general um, are yeah. exactly that way. Some of the we would have never asked to go through that experience, but we have to acknowledge at the conclusion of it that we grew and changed in ways that were completely unexpected. And the willingness to to subject yourself to to the hardship and to the to the new opportunity is uh, is something that, that people I think. I think they're more afraid of than they should be Um, because we, we as a group are very concerned about potentially failing at something. We don't want to be bad at anything. Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, and it's funny because we all were bad at whatever it was that we're doing now at some point. So you think back on the beginning of your military career, um, you were probably pretty awful at most everything. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, the, uh, I give a lot of credit to the supervisors for their patience, you know. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> so it, and I, I, no one is any different. Yeah. And it's a, uh, but what you do is you persist and you work hard and you seek to better yourself on a day-by-day basis. And then at some point in time, you stop. And if, you, and if you're smart enough, you'll pick your head up from what you're doing and you'll kind of look around a little bit and you'll acknowledge where you're at in your in your journey mm-hmm. and acknowledge what's behind you and how much you've evolved and, and changed and grown over that time. And you'll realize that you know, those, those mistakes and, and being in those horribly uncomfortable positions because you are really <laughs> awful at something, those are all part of doing something great. And it is all part of, of getting this experience of growing into a completely different person because the big leaps that we make personally are the ones that are usually the worst, the most uncomfortable, and the painful experiences that we have. But it's what gets us moving along the fastest. And so I, yeah. I just always recommend wherever folks can, jump on that opportunity. Oh, you should, uh, you, you should not be fearful of the fact that you're going to be bad at something. Because um, <laughs> if you're doing something new, you're going to be. But at some point, if you stay with it and you don't quit, you won't be. And uh, everybody that I know of that has done something truly exceptional has gotten truly great at some specific skill or attribute. It's a three-step process to it. And uh, I try to tell the students um, at graduation every class and encourage them to do the same thing. And that simple three-step process is decide what you want to do. What do you want to be great at? Pick it out. Okay. Um, If you pick it out, then acknowledge you're not going to be good at it, right? So you're going to be probably pretty awful at it. And if it's a big stretch goal for you, you're going to be really awful at it for an unknown amount of time. But if you never quit and you keep striving, 
at some point you will reach confidence and you will reach a thing that somebody else looks at you and goes, wow, you are amazing at that. And I've never heard a different a different recipe for those who have achieved something really, really neat um, <laughs> other than those things. So it's kind of one of those deals where, hey, what do we want to do? Um, acknowledge you're going to not be good at it. Mm-hmm. Power through. Don't quit. And eventually you'll find you're really, really good at stuff. And all of us who've risen to some level of confidence um, in our professional or personal lives have done exactly that. Yeah. Well, hearing your story, I mean, that... It seems like as soon as you got a little bit comfortable, like the heart rate started to go down just a couple beats, it was, okay, where's the next challenge? Where's the next challenge? Where's the next challenge? At least outside looking in, that's that's kind of the way I hear your career is went, you know. It, it was, and uh, I jokingly refer to it as an employment attention deficit disorder. But uh, <laughs> I did have a lot of career moves, and... What I found is with each career move that I made, it like reinvigorated me. It restarted me because I wasn't I wasn't suddenly at the top of my game in that specific thing. Mm-hmm. So it imposed a requirement to be humble, uh, to to reengage because frankly I just wasn't that good anymore, and <laughs> and I had to start over again, earning my way in. And as I got a little farther on, and there was a new opportunity that opened up, I'd go take that. And the Air Force career, the 17 years that I've been with the Air Force, that's just been such a such a great time to run it all the way through and to be terminating this career of having gotten to fly like I have and having gotten to uh, serve with uh, the SEER community and personnel recovery, everything else. I couldn't imagine a more compelling way to finish uh, being so utterly invested in human beings and, and benefiting them as we go out and project force around the world. Yeah, that's it's kind of hard to think about, okay, well, what's your next step to one-up this? Yeah. <laughs> so I have some questions here to rapid fire here in a minute, but I wanted to give you opportunity to cover anything that we didn't yet or to talk about, if you want to, what your next step is. Uh, I guess if I was gonna, if I was going to leave people with some sort of advice on um, – their military career and just life in general. It would be something along the lines of when I first came in 32 years ago, there was a lot of rules about who could serve, who could not, who mm-hmm. was who was qualified, and we placed a whole bunch of restrictions on people, um, on, on their ability to serve. And those restrictions were imposed by some really smart people who thought they were doing the right thing for the force. Right. And over time we figured out they were dead wrong. They were absolutely wrong. And when I first came in, I kind of developed that mentality that that's the way it should be. And so you kind of get into that way of thought, much like I thought the Berlin Wall would never go down. Mm -hmm. Now, it's kind of one of those things, what are we doing now that we're saying, oh, well, that's just the way it is that we're going to find out we were dead wrong on. And so that's, that's some of that just stop and be willing to, to analyze what's going on. And the only way we're really going to get an opportunity to get those kind of insights is if we interact with people that are utterly unlike us. Yeah, so, that's a good point. So we need, to, we need to be engaging and creating teams and people that we interact with who do challenge us, who do challenge our assumptions, who have dramatically different perspectives and backgrounds. And yeah. once we end up doing those things and we engage with them, 
doesn't mean we're going to buy everything that gets discussed or, or valued in that conversation. Right. But at least we've been enlightened and given the opportunity to evaluate a different perspective. And frankly, over 32 years, there's so many things that just were taken as truths that turned out to be utterly wrong-headed and false. And as a result, today, with the changes that we've had, we have a much better, uh, much more effective force than we did um, 32 years ago. And it's been amazing to be a part of it. I guess that's one of those things I constantly have to remind myself. I can stop making excuses for why I don't want to change because things are moving (laughs) along faster than I want to go. Or I can get busy analyzing what does it mean. And uh, I hear a lot of people complain about uh, the new generation of airmen uh, coming <laughs> yeah, up. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know how many times I've heard millennial used as a derogatory term. <laughs> and, uh, and it's funny because uh, the reality is what I, what I see, and I'm biased by the fact that I have two sons serving in the military, is that I don't think it's a, it's a demographic problem. I think what it is, it's a leadership problem. And we haven't necessarily evolved to figure out how to fully engage and inspire and motivate the next demographic because yeah. the next the next group doesn't value authority figures at all like the earlier groups did and i think it's fairly simple because they can flip open or pull out a phone out of their pocket and they can evaluate everything on that supercomputer yeah. and they can fact check whatever is going on and they can yeah. get that information someone like that doesn't need an authority figure for information like the previous generations did so yeah. There's just not a valuation of the same people. Now, the problem becomes when you have a group that does that and they have tremendous access to information and they sometimes forget that you can't build knowledge and proficiency and experience by just reading. Right. Um, it has right. to be lived and it has to be performed. And so figuring out how to talk to that demographic and inspire them with a compelling story about what they do and why it matters enough that they're invested and then layer that with another incredibly compelling story about why what they do matters to the larger picture. And uh, I, I heard a, a military training instructor at Lackland say that is what is making a difference for him is to be able to articulate that message in a compelling way. And he said, there is no shortage of commitment. There's no shortage of buy-in from this new demographic that people um, argue and and malign and talk badly of. It just takes a different style of leadership. And whether we're ready to adjust as the old heads um, is (laughs) another question. I'm so glad that you said that because I I see that in the FTAC class that I put on. It's there's no disrespect. There's no I mean, this generation that we're talking about is more perfectly poised than I think we ever have been to date. So they have the technology, they have the resources. And like you said, if we as leaders figure out how to serve them the way that they need and the way, you know, figure out their blind spots as well as our blind spots and adapt accordingly. Oh my gosh, we're on fire. There's nothing stopping us oh, absolutely. at all. I mean, yeah. what, what, what took me as an airman, you know, half a day to look up in a job guide to fix on the airplane. These guys have got the search thing figured out. And I'm even talking old hat with saying the search thing. You know, there's something else that they got now that, you know, they got that job done so much quicker, more efficient and effective than what I could ever do when I was at that age. So I'm I'm pumped up about it. 
No, I, yeah. I am too. I think they're a phenomenal yeah. group, and it's going to be hard when I walk away. Uh, I jokingly say that you know leaving the military is unlike uh, leaving prison uh, <laughs> when you've been institutionalized for this long, and that I can't commit a crime and get back into the military um, like I like I could if I was uh, getting out of prison. But um, this job has always been about the extraordinary people that you get to spend your time with. And regardless of foreign policy, regardless of political stuff, regardless of whatever the the noise of the day is that's going on, when it all starts going sideways and things get really, really bad, it's about the people you're with and your ability to weather that storm. And uh, and that's just such a phenomenal thing. And I think uh, the other thing, if I had to say from a commander's perspective, the thing that bothers me probably the most and it's not endemic, and at least not in my experience, but the fact that we still have people who don't recognize that the other people that they serve with, that they've raised their right hand with, and the commitment that they've made to up to and including dying mm-hmm. for this mission, and that they think it's still okay to victimize those people and to be mm-hmm. cruel or abusive or inappropriate or whatever it is, that dumbfounds me. Because it just shows such an utter lack of acknowledgement for what shared commitment we've all made. And uh, I think that's probably one of those things that I'll remain the most frustrated about is that we haven't figured out how to identify those people yet um, and remove them from the force. Yeah. Or change your mentality. One of the two. Yeah. Correct. And that's one of those things that, uh, oh, because, you know, we have to acknowledge the value of every single human being that, that we serve with. And the commitments that they've made and, yeah. and the need to value them enough that they're better today than they were yesterday and, and keep that building because yeah. the group, like you're talking about, we figure out how to optimize all of their attributes, get them with the, the right knowledge, the right experience, the right technology. Um, we are going to absolutely crush our adversaries and we will continue to do it. The, the biggest failure is not going to be in the human being. It's, it's going to be in the fact that we failed to adapt our leadership styles enough to make the most of it Mm -hmm. i'd agree with that i would okay so i got some rapid fire questions we talked about a lot of these but it's kind of fun to go back through them in a a quick format so how would you define success i would define success as uh, doing anything that allows you to get up in the morning look at yourself in the mirror and feel good about yourself Um, i like that uh, we we call it a lot of things, honor. We call it a lot of things. And if the way you are living your life, the way you are pursuing your objectives, the way you are treating people um, is appropriate, then you can look at the person in the mirror with a sense of honor. And to me, that is the greatest success you can possibly have because you can't escape yourself. So if you like that person, you know, you've achieved something. I love that. That's a great, I haven't heard that answer yet. And I, that's awesome. Thanks. What do you think has made you successful? Uh, persistence, <laughs> stubbornness, great family. Um, I have just an absolutely phenomenal uh, wife who has, uh, who has taken all the craziness that goes with military service mm-hmm. and, and provided some stability and, and order uh, to my children when I couldn't. And nice. uh, I'm just so incredibly appreciative of that. But she is absolutely core and fundamental to my success. In, in doing things because she gave me the latitude to go pursue 
the the next reach goal, the next odd thing that I might want to go after. And, uh, and, and now she did that. So I, th- I think just the, the unwillingness to quit and then to be backed um, by good people uh, is probably is probably foundational most to, to what I've been able to do. I 100% agree with you on that. <clears throat> what drives you? Um, well, that's changed over time. Um, when I first came in, it was a, it was a desire to prove things to myself. Okay. Um, and when we talk about my family and all the things they had done, um, (laughs) what I, what I hadn't processed at that time is that the things that got them, the experiences, the, uh, the medals and everything else were truly horrific situations in which I'm so glad I didn't have to endure. Yeah. Um, but, uh, I went after it from the standpoint that I need to prove myself in this family as, as, as a person of merit. And then as, uh, as time goes by, what ends up happening is as I get older in the military, mm-hmm. and it's one of the reasons I've decided to, to choose retirement at this point, um, is physically I'm not able to keep up like I used to. Okay. Um, and my biggest driver right now is the fear of becoming less of a leader and a person that the men and women of this squadron deserve. Wow. Um, That's important to know. I mean... When to, when to step down and somebody else might be able to carry it better. And there's no shame in that, right? There's no, we get, everybody's got their limits and everybody's got, you know, different things that, that they kind of go into. So that's, that's a very humble answer. Kind of like what you're saying. One of the key things being humble, right? Well, it, it is one of those things that eventually, you know, you, you, uh, there are people who are faster, funnier, smarter, who are doing things and you got to kind of make way for them sometimes. Uh, no matter how much you're enjoying what you're doing or how much you'd love to stay longer, uh, if it's better for the people to end up doing that. And that's what drives me right now is just the desire to be the best that I can for them. It reflects back into the same story about who I look at in the mirror. Mm-hmm. I have to be able to live with that person. And um, I have to be able to to do that and, and, a, and be able to be the kind of person that my wife has kind of come to expect and that my sons um, expect. There's another part to it, which is kind of funny, and, and, and I think a parent of uh, service members also has a perspective, is I think about what kind of leadership I wish for them, what mm. kind of leadership I think they deserve, and what I wish they would get. And then I think, I can't ask or demand that if I'm not willing to at least aspire to be something along those lines myself, because mm. I may not be able to influence what kind of leadership they have, but I can sure influence the kind of leadership that the parents of the men and women in the 22nd have. And so that's kind of that, if you want to call it pay it forward or whatever, that's kind of a motivational thing that drives me now. That's a, a huge thing to drive you too. <laughs> You're, yeah. I think if it was really distilled down to, uh, to his simplest terms, um, to a certain extent driven by, by fear, fear of failure and not, not failure on a personal level, but failure to serve the needs of your people well enough. And, uh, Oh, so I don't view it as a negative. It's still motivational, Yeah, but you have to be aware that that's the cost of failure. And, uh, is, is that you are failing those people. That's a really good point. You know, there's two different types of failure. You know, there's the, okay, I can learn from that and move forward, which isn't really failure. It's just part of the process to get to where you're going. And then there is a legit failure that you just mentioned of, no, this, this could be a bad thing, you know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and when you get into the position of commander, um, there are so many decisions that uh, you can potentially find yourself making 
that have very real implications for people and their families and careers and all of those things. And, and it's just, there's no room for being haphazard or lazy in it. And as squadron command goes, I can completely understand why two years is, is a normal interval because you are smoked by that time. Uh, but it is, uh, it is also just such an epic experience and an opportunity if you, if you embrace it. And I think if you own it, and I think most of the people, I don't know anybody here on Fairchild that has not viewed their obligations as a commander with that same level of gravity and commitment. Oh, so yeah, it's just a, that's kind of another neat thing is mm-hmm. the folks that you get to serve with that are in those similar roles. You just look around and you're like, man, these people are amazing. Kind of have that network, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and you get to see them in action. You're like, Oh geez, I could step up my game in this area and that area. I got to get to, I got to get busy. And so it's yeah. uh, it's always good because they're, uh, they, they help drive you to a better level of performance. Kind of a walking among giants sort of a thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And and being receptive to acknowledging, you know, what, what each of them brings and what their gifts are. And uh, oh, and then just, you know, being being ready to, to acknowledge it and admire it to a certain extent without being envious or or mm-hmm. or frustrated that you aren't there yet. Well, that's part of that journey you were talking about earlier. With enough persistence and drive, you're gonna get there. You know, yeah. if you value it, absolutely, and that's if that's something you aspire to, and you don't quit, you will get there. Okay, what is the greatest lesson that you've learned? Um, honestly, the greatest lesson that I've learned is uh, treat every single person you come across as absolutely well as you possibly can. Um, I I'm not I'm not someone of the the you know Eastern. Um, religious ideology or spirituality or anything else, but I cannot deny the fact that what you give out to the world will come back to you. And so the greatest thing that I can think you could possibly do is take care of people and treat them very, very well. Everything else has always shaken out in the end, as long as I care about the human beings that I was with um, and treated them accordingly. Uh, And that, I think that helps to anchor yourself a little bit in, in humility and a sense of service as well. But yeah. uh, anytime I've got off that path, um, I, I usually took some sort of a, a shot upside the head uh, to get reoriented. And uh, and it was, it's ne- that, that one's been a truism and it's never buried. Got, got a little bit humbled from time to time? Yes. What are you learning now? Um, that is a great, uh, great question. I learn a lot every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just had a recent uh, opportunity uh, yesterday morning to participate in a legal process, a military uh, legal process. Uh, I, I learn something from the people every day that I work with. Uh, more than anything, I think probably right now in this time, I am learning to be more than my career has led me to believe because okay. I am having to transition out of the military and I will have all that history but I don't get to carry the uniform. I don't get to carry the status and the title and all of that with mm-hmm. me when I move into retirement. Um, I have to be someone new and I need to, I need to learn how to value that and figure out who that person is. I think that's probably the biggest thing I'm learning right now. Let me know how that goes. Cause I'm going to need that here in a little <laughs> bit too. <laughs> well, hopefully it goes well executed. Well, you don't know. I may be, uh, I'd be 
be lost as last year's Easter egg uh, somewhere <laughs> in that process, but we'll see. Something tells me you'll be fine. <laughs> we'll work through it. What have you read that we should read? Ooh, um, I don't have any specific things that I would really recommend people read. I think it's one of those um, situations where you analyze what your own limitations are, and then you pursue getting knowledge in the area that helps you to close that limitation. Okay. Um, so a lot of self-reflection. Yeah, I think it's, then... yeah, it's <clears throat> just taking the time to analyze where your gaps are and then, okay, take some time and find something and read on it. Uh, doesn't mean you're going to get an answer or a solution to it, but it moves you closer. And as you end up doing that, it also forces you to define whatever your limitation or shortcoming is more clearly. And I think there's yeah. value in that. And I don't think that there's ever, there's ever a, a problem with, um, I, I'm kind of a history nut. Mm -hmm. I love, I love hearing li uh, podcasts on history, just completed an amazing podcast on world war one. Nice. Um, a lot of those other things. Um, I just don't think there's a, a I don't think you can go wrong by, by just learning and being engaged with that. And, uh, and not always necessarily the exact same thing that you're comfortable with. Get out of that. Get out of that every once in a while and shake it up. Do something different. I get out of your comfort zone. I love that. I tried to do that. Well, that's how this podcast got formed. Just get out of my comfort zone. What scares the crap out of me? Yeah. Figuring this out. <laughs> this, yeah, this is going to be a tremendous amount of work, and it's appreciated. Well, I, like I said before, I appreciate your time. A couple more, and then we'll we'll wrap this up. So. What advice would you give the 19-year-old you if you could go back in time? Um, I think it would be to work as hard to be as good as you can be where you're at at the time. That creates its own set of opportunities. Okay. And it creates the, the foundation in which you get to do other things from. And engage more in experiencing the situation as it's happening and less time being so focused on what the next thing is. Because uh, I, uh, I think we go through life frequently. As we're doing things, our, our vision and our thoughts are somewhere out in the future. Yes. And we're missing out on all the amazing, awesome things that are going on right now. I think that's probably what I'd tell my 19-year-old self is just, uh, you know, hey, dial into what you're doing right now every once in a while and appreciate <laughs> it more because that time's going to pass and you don't get it back. I 100% agree with that. I was talking to my mother-in-law the other night about that. And uh, I think it's kind of trained in the military a little bit of, you know, we constantly have to be thinking, what's next, what's next, what's next. But you can separate that job, duty, career versus personal fulfillment. Yes. And I think that's an important thing to do. And I think that really <clears throat> dark period in my life that I had um, was most causal by the fact that I failed to be paying attention to what was going on and the people that I had on, in my life. And I got focused on things that were outside my control. And, and that got really, really bad. Once I got dialed back in, it suddenly got exponentially better. That's so, awesome. So I'd, I'd <laughs> highly recommend that to anyone. We're, we're kind of a disconnected society. We spend a lot of time on electronics. Yeah. And while we might have social media and we might be interacting with a lot of people electronically, there is a shortage of human interaction and to talk to somebody and to just visit with them and to tell them, you know, how awesome they are as a person. Um, it has lifelong implications of oh, doing yeah. that, but you're not ever going to know to say that 
unless you're paying attention to the person when you're interacting with them. And, uh, and, and that distraction, I think we lose a lot of opportunities to build our lives and to build the lives of others. I want to add to that as well, because because we have less frequency of interacting, our, our skill set to be able to pick up on those is less and less and less. So we do miss opportunities just because our, our skill set to be able to know what, how to interact, how to effectively make a friendship. You know, I think it's, there's a lot of socially awkward people out there, you know, in, in a lot of different situations. Well, you're you absolutely know? right. It, it is a skill. It is a, and it a trophies. I think the, the biggest thing that ends up getting lost most frequently is the ability to read all the nonverbal cues. Yeah. And that's, that's a skill. And, and, it, and regaining that, uh, I think um, people who are socially awkward, uh, it, isn't, it isn't a sentence. It isn't a terminal sentence. Right, right. It's, it's just a case of how much do you want to be willing to pay full, dedicated attention to the people that you're interacting with and then try to develop the skill. It's like working out with weights. You know, eventually you'll lift greater weight. Well, if you pay attention, your attention will get better and better and better. And you will start acknowledging and recognizing all those shifts and adjustments and things that tell you, okay, they're done with talking to you right now and they're not enjoying it anymore. (laughs) Or this is a really great conversation, but the, those who consider themselves or others consider socially awkward, just have a hard time picking up those cues. Yeah. And by and large, um, from what I've seen, it's, Rarely is it uh, some sort of a disorder more than it is a lack of paying attention or um, a lack of desire to pay attention and be focused on the other individual. It's, you know, kind of being lost in their own world. Yep. 100% agree with you on that. Okay. The last one for you. And I think we already covered these and I think I have an idea what they are, but I want to hear from, hear from you to see how well I was paying attention, I guess. What are the three takeaways from, I mean, I don't have my watch up here, but we've been talking for a little bit now. So what are some three, what are the three takeaways or up to three takeaways that you got for us, the listener from what we've been talking about today? I'd say the first thing is, is, uh, first thing is that three-step process that I talked about being great at something. Mm -hmm. So, uh, it's the decide what you want, acknowledge you're not going to be good at it. And then press through and don't quit until you are good. Because that's really going to add huge fulfillment and sense of success to you. The other thing is, is that always recognize that the people you work with, regardless of rank or position, are human beings with aspirations and hopes and dreams and everything else. And if you treat them well and you do everything you possibly can to help them be a better version of themselves you win on an incredible basis yourself because you'll develop incredibly. Um, and it, and it feeds into that kind of experience about putting out good things yeah. because that's what you get back. Uh, and it's about treating people well. And I think the, the last thing is just persist, you know, just keep pressing on and, uh, how missteps and failures are not, are not fatal. Uh, and they really aren't, but we may, we remain very fearful of it. And, yeah. So you just keep going, and when you run into roadblocks, do your best to take away all the reasons that people can say no, because <laughs> because eventually um, they will say yes, and you'll get to go do whatever it is you want to do. And uh, so I think you put all three of those together, 
it's kind of been the, the things that have led to the greatest amount of personal happiness in my life. And it's allowed me to be uh, more of the person that I can, I can acknowledge and, and, and be okay with uh, as I get up in the morning and look in the mirror. Nice. Nice. I was, I had one out of three. I thought you were going to say, be humble. No is not the answer. And then persist. Yeah. So, well, <laughs> humility, humility is kind of, uh, I think when you, when you think about the, the people and staying in orientation in that, I think it helps to anchor you to a sense of humility. Um, yeah. but you're right. Uh, any one of those would be, would be fine. I like um, yours a little bit better though. Those are, I'm going to play this back a couple times just for me. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully it ends up benefiting someone, but it's been, it has been a, just an incredible adventure. It really has. And I could not imagine leaving on a higher note. Well, I really appreciate your time for this. Colonel Mercer, thank you so much for being here. So that's it. This is uh, the Refuel Team Fairchild podcast. Again, I'm your host, Master Sergeant Lance Haas. If you have a show idea or anybody that you would like to hear from on this show, please contact us at refuelteamfairchild at gmail.com.